please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 9, verses 37 through 45. Luke 9, 37 through 45. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless. And twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything He was doing, Jesus said to His disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. Holy Father, may You grace us all here today to hear the love that flows from Jesus' lips when He says to us who are His, Oh, faithless, twisted generation, may we hear the beckoning of that loving admonition in our lives every day. To the glory of His name. Amen. Well, I, I, what we just heard, children in different circumstances can grip you. When Marlo Thomas, us older people know, remember that girl? When she gets on TV to ask for money for St. Jude's Children's Hospital and they show kids how are any of us not moved what we may be sitting by our healthy child at that moment, looking at a, shit, a bald child going through chemo. In this situation, there's a real parent here. There's a dad and there's a boy who has this horrific disease, problem, demonization for years. Let's get the context that Luke is setting up. 
Jesus has been up on the mountain praying with only three of his apostles, the three inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And the evening before was the transfiguration, the cloud of glory. And then from his inner being, Jesus shone. And he's talking with Moses and Elijah. And a voice speaks from heaven. This real man is my beloved son. Listen to him. Okay? They come down the mountain into this chaotic situation. There is a desperate dad and a convulsing boy. Yet at the core of this passage, what it's really about is faith. And it speaks directly, therefore, to every one of us in here. Do you walk in faith? Do you fight the fight of faith to trust in God? See, what we see here is the call of faith in very mundane, real, even painful, everyday life. So what I'm going to do this morning, first, as we work our way through the text, is to see, not just the text, but how it reflects and asks us questions about faith. What is faith? What, what do you mean by faith and it walking? We're going to see that. Then I'm going to focus more on the definition of faith. And then I'm going to call us to three months of fasting and prayer. That's where we're going. Let's notice the foundation of faith. This is the question. Okay, faith. Where does faith exist? Right here. Verses 38 and 39. Desperate need. That's the ground. Are you ever desperate? You're in good shape for faith. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out, and it convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him. It will hardly leave him. Okay. I think everybody, but clearly every parent can relate to the pain that this man or wherever his wife may be must be dealing with on a daily basis. And in Mark's account of this, Mark lets us know that Jesus asked the man, How long has he been like this? And he said, From a child. It's years. He's, he's probably a young teenager by now. This demon, for years, has been destroying this mom, this dad, their little boy's life. Socially. <laughs> you think he's just hanging out at little Joey's house every day with this problem? Emotionally physically. And his dad 
realized his utter dependence. His utter desperation, which is the foundation for faith. This dad was desperate. He said, Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast it out. And they couldn't. So this is a chaotic scene. What had been going on for Jesus gets here. you got the nine apostles, and they were doing whatever formula they were doing to try to cast the demon out. But they couldn't. And Mark's Gospel lets us know not only that, when Jesus walked down there, they had already been trying, and they're in a big argument with the professional teachers of the law. And it's going back and forth. So you've got to get this scene to write, see what's really going to happen and what's going to come out of Jesus' mouth. See, the apostles, we know at least weeks and months earlier, they've been sent out two by two. They have cast out demons, even without Jesus around. They've done it. And here they are, trying their formula again. And they're not able to. Why not? The answer is in Jesus' emotional response. Verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to put up, bear with you? Wow. It is my shot at it. Here's Jesus in his sinless human nature, right after the very unusual, once in his human lifetime experience the night before the transfiguration in the glory cloud, shining through talking with Moses and Elijah about what he is about to do in heading to Jerusalem. And Luke says, boom! Heads down the mountain into absolute chaos. Crowds. His disciples are arguing with these guys. And demon possession is present. So I think what's going on is that he... He, in his human nature, really feels like an outsider to all this unbelief around him. See, he he seems to be really in touch with a deep, deep sense of homesickness in relation to where he just was on that mountain. And now he's in the midst of this mess. And what we get from him is this. The root of this chaos, the root of the apostles' powerlessness is unbelief. Their failure was not in not trying to cast the demon out. They were probably doing the same formulas that they had before. They were probably trusting in their ministry now. But somehow, 
I think this is what's going on. And we've got to think about our own lives. Somehow, in that ministry, they had been moving away from their vertical relationship, communion, prayer with God. Which means they had been moving away from faith, from trusting God to trusting themselves, to trusting their past ministry experiences. Now, I think this becomes clear when you flip over it in Mark, because Mark gives us a little bit more what happened in this situation. Okay? And after this, the disciples, his disciples, his apostles, when they got alone with Jesus, okay, Jesus, what happened? Why couldn't we cast the demon out? And Jesus answered, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Yeah. I don't think he meant there in this context that therefore you would never address the demon. I'm not, I don't think that's what he meant. I think he meant there, there, your lack of faith, your lack of prayer, your lack of vertical going to God. And, and, and prayer and faith are so connected. I mean, true prayer is the life of, the act of Faith, a, a child to his loving heavenly Father, as Paul lets us know, it's the essence of becoming a Christian. Something happened to you. God placed in you His Spirit, which cries out now in and through you, Abba, Father. And so, Jesus says, faith. And twisted generation. Now, Jesus is a very biblical guy. So, when he says this, he is clearly alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 32. The children of Israel under Moses in the wilderness. You know the story, don't you? Just constant. Well, look at that. God supplied. And next day, bicker, 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 bicker. It's just constant unbelief. It's constant refusing to trust in God who had delivered them. Okay, great. What about today? They wouldn't trust God's promises for the next three hours or the next day. And you get unfaithless, unbelieving, twisted generation. And Jesus alludes to that when He comes down the mountain and it includes... His apostles. See, not just unbelieving, twisted, or you could translate it perverse. It's just, in other words, there's something screwed up about the human race and about every one of us. We're all born into sin. Now, the the miracle is that any of us ever have faith. The miracle is that any of us ever come to a heart change and to trust God in the Gospel. And for all the promises that it gives 
to one degree or another and never perfectly. But that we do, that is a glorious miracle. So here's the good news about us who are so messed up, even as believers, is that true faith that He's calling for, it grows in the soil of brokenness, twistedness, messed upness. It grows in the soil of wrestling with your beckoning unbelief in God daily. So that's the first thing about faith. Oh, it's in, in that whole thing. It, are you desperate? Do you feel desperate? Do you feel empty? Do you feel like I can taste my unbelief? You feel like crying? Oh, but God. Okay, you're in a good place. Because that's where faith grows from. The second thing we see here, not only do you have your flesh, that is your sinful nature to battle with every day, you also have Satan and demons who hate your guts and they're in a battle with you. And we see that here. This is a demon destroying his life. When we put Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, all the information we have of this scene, this is what's going on with this boy. When the demon seizes him, he screams. Can you imagine your kid? The spirit that throws the boy to the ground in convulsions so that he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes stiff as a board. And many times over the years, depending on where they're at, He'd be thrown into fire or into water. This was the life that these parents were dealing with. And now, though a lack of faith, according to Jesus, seems to be a big problem here, that does not mean that faith heals or delivers. Christ heals and delivers. Verse 41. Bring your son here. Oh gosh, what words. Who knows how many hours this has been going on and Jesus finally shows up. Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Wow. So, the scene is chaotic. Argument. Huge crowd. Lots of commotion. Jesus shows up. Probably gets worse. Bring your boy here. And then you can just picture the screaming and being thrown to the ground. Okay, there's a lot of drama. And then the most compassionate man who ever lived acts without any drama. Just simply, he rebuked the unclean spirit. And he healed the boy. And he gave him back 
to his father. No wonder verse 43 says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. Okay, but he, he says to us that often what, what hinders us from experiencing deliverance or joy or happiness or victory over evil or evil spirits is a lack of faith. He said to the dad in Mark's account, so Luke doesn't get it, but this is what he said to the dad. All things are possible to the one who believes. So, to Jesus, this seems to be really crucial. Now, we're going to go there a little bit, but I gotta deal, I'm going to deal with an elephant in the room first, because for me, what does that mean? What do you mean all things are possible? I mean, on one sense, if God's power in Jesus Christ is so great that all things are possible to believers. Just like that, without any qualification whatsoever. Then why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why do family squabbles continue on? Why are hospitals still in business? I mean, hey, all things are possible to believers who believe. Let's believe. Let's hold hands and get around children's hospital and all pray. Cancer away and empty it. Is that what Jesus means? Obviously not. See, I think the obvious, biblical, contextual answer is that it would be wrong to to say Jesus meant something by those words that He obviously, from the larger context of Scripture, could not have meant. See, clearly, all things are possible to Him who believes. That all things clearly means all things within God's will. Right? I mean, this is a real simple one. I really, really, really believe God will lie tomorrow. Well, trust me, it's not going to come about. Okay, because it's not God's will. Okay, another larger, bigger biblical picture. Okay, that, that was simple. Look, we know from Scripture, if we understand redemption and redemptive history, it's really clear from God and from Christ in the Bible, that in this present evil age, before His second coming, evil, evil people, demonic activity, cancer, sickness, and death will be present with us. Okay? So there's a context of God's will. If it was not God's will for sinful men to torture His eternal Son and put Him to death in Jerusalem, it never would have happened. Okay, now, 
the second thing with that is we now as finite sinful yet justified in Christ people often confuse our will with God's will. I mean, okay, wow. You've been reading Luke? It's just You've been reading it? Obviously, yeah, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the sovereign one. You died for my sins. We can see how you chose twelve. And from the twelve, you, you had three intimates, Peter, James, and John, that were there with you on the mountain to witness your transfiguration. And those three to witness your death and to witness your resurrection. You poured your life into them. Obviously, Jesus, you would in no way will that one of those guys would be dead in a couple of years. Why would you waste your time on them? That's how we might think. And yet, James, the son of Zebedee, is killed within a couple of years of the resurrection. Well, but God couldn't... Well, look, what's so fascinating about the way God works is that He was killed under Herod. And then the next thing Luke tells us in Acts is that Herod says, this is fun, let's grab this other big leader guy named Peter. And he imprisons him. And God chooses to miraculously deliver Peter from prison and from death to which he was going to go. Why? Why Peter? Why not James? You don't know. Neither do I. It's not for us mortals to know. That is God's secret, sovereign will to know. God allows pain and suffering. And God delivers from pain and suffering. And all of that is part of His massive, sovereign, good mosaic for the sanctification of all that He is saving in Jesus. Remember how the Apostle Peter would later write it, talking about this great salvation and this glorious future hope where everything is laid up on the other side of the resurrection. And he says... When you get this, believer, in this you rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials and afflictions. Now what is all that grief about? It goes back to where we're going this morning. Faith. Because now, even in experiencing unwanted things, faith is alive. And he says, in the midst of it, your faith is being purified and growing. Okay? So, all things, well, yeah, that's right. All things are possible, Jesus, to him who believes. Believe him. Believe him. We're going to get to, okay, that, that kind of defines it a little bit more too, doesn't it? Believe him. What has he said that said now, faith is at the essence of the Christian life. This dad, in that situation, he was trying to believe. Okay. Jesus said to him, according to Mark, 
All things are possible to him who believes. He says, I do believe. And you know what he said next, right? And this is what we should always say. But help my unbelief. That is the plea of every Christian walking in the Spirit. It's at the heart of the most basic question of the Christian life that we should be asking every day. Wake up, what do I do? I don't mean do I go to work or do I do this errand or do I feed the kids? What do I do as a believer? What is my life about today? How do I go about doing whatever I'm doing? this day? That's the question. In other words, you come to faith in Christ. Your eyes are open. And you realize, I do believe. I believe in the Gospel. I believe that Christ died for my sin. I have faith. Oh, look at that. It's clear in Galatians. It's clear in Romans. I have been justified. Right now, God has put me in absolute forgiveness and perfect righteousness of His Son. It's mine. Heaven is secured. I'm in. What do you do for the next 48 years until you die? Okay, you came to faith. Do you, what do you do now? Do you, okay, now the way I do life, the Christian life, is supposed to be holy. Okay, not supposed to do that. I should do that. How do you do it? Willpower? A self-help book has a little methods of doing stuff better? You wake up every day and you realize that your sinful temptation is much stronger than what you as a Christian think you ought to do? Why and how do you act? Out of mere, well, He saved me, so I guess I should. Gratitude? The answer is no. None of that. The same faith that initially brought you to Christ is the same faith you are to live and walk in every day. This is how the Apostle Paul sums it up for his life and I think for our life in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now, now the life that I go on living in the flesh, in mortality, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Now, he goes on a few verses later, and he's talking to Christians like us in these differing Galatian churches, and he says to them, because the context is, they were being tempted. Now that you've come to faith in Christ, you need to do some works and some acts in such a way that are not acts that are based on daily faith. Okay. So he says this to them. In chapter 3, verses 2 to 3 of Galatians. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by your 
works of the law or by your hearing with faith? Okay, obviously, the second. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit? Are you now doing the rest of your Christian life based on something else? Now, that was a nice way to say it. He says it a little more harshly. Are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? He calls this religion your own sinful disposition. So, just let me give you an example. What do we mean? Okay. I'm a believer. I've been a believer for 30 years. Okay. The Scripture, all over, Old Testament, New Testament, all over, commands me to love Others within the church. Love others without. Okay. Think about it. And what love means in doing, meeting, needs of others that they have a need to meet. Often, to, in order to do that, you know what that means? That means I have to deny felt needs at times. I have to deny particular selfish desires because the call of love is going to interfere with what I desire at the moment. That's the tension. Do you, you ever feel this? Okay. So the question is, how do you live? How do, you, how do we do that? Again, the Bible says it this way in Galatians 5.6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Now, contact you just put, neither you, you give, you do this, you do that. All that stuff in and of itself doesn't mean anything. What means Everything is this. Faith. Literal translation. Faith which works itself out in love. Okay, I'm commanded to love. How do I get there? You can't get there truly apart from the dynamic of walking by faith. Because it is the faith that is working itself out Oh, I was able to deny my sin and selfishness there and see a little bit of fruit of loving this person on this particular day. Or listen to the way one of the other guys that was in on the Mount of Transfiguration, John, says it later in 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born again, or born of God, overcomes the world. How do we overcome the world? And he means worldliness, what all the world beckons for us in its culture and within our fleshly nature. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. What? Our faith. The Christian life. The daily Christian life is a battle against unbelief. It is a daily fight to place our trust in God, in Jesus, in His promises. Paul called it a battle in Ephesians 6, right? He sees all the Roman armory. He uses that as his illustration. 
you know, and you need swords and helmets and, and, and you need shields because you're in a warfare whether you know it or not with yourself, with your flesh, and with evil spirits. And, and what does Paul call that shield? Take up the shield of faith. See, in the Christian life, walking by the Spirit, living Christianly, it, faith is, how do you say, let me, it's everything. What, what, no, there's lots of other things. No, they're all connected to whether you're walking in faith or not. So what I mean, there's a simpleness to the Christian life. It, it's everything like, like electricity in your home is everything. It empowers all your stuff that needs electricity. So, in your Christian life, or in your home, if there's a power outage in the neighborhood, don't go rip the back off your TV you start messing around with wires and try, why doesn't it work? That's not the problem. There's a power outage. In so much of our lives, well, it's because of this, it's because of family of origin, it's because this is my pattern, here's a new book, how do I do this better? Okay, those, don't get me wrong, things help you, but that's not at the core of the problem. When we're talking about our rebellion against God, we're talking about our daily sin. The problem is the electricity is out. Or the problem is I'm not walking in faith. So, so, so the solution is what this dad says. Okay, I believe. I do. I do. That's why I'm even here praying right now. Help my remaining unbelief in this or that or the other. Area. That's the question our text raises for us. Do you live by faith? Okay. Now, okay, let's define that. What do you mean, Joe? Okay. What is faith? One of the most concise definitions, which has always been very helpful for me since 1993 that my professor, Daniel Fuller, used to say, is faith is trusting in all that God promises to be to us in Jesus. Let's break that down. Faith is trusting. Faith doesn't mean merely agreeing with certain truths. It's not synonymous with faith. James, didn't he let us know? Demons, they believe, they agree with good, correct, doctrinal truth. God, there's only one God. They get that. They know that. But they don't walk by faith. In other words, they don't live by placing their hope and their desires in God said this for my good and I believe it and trust in Him in it. That's not how demons live. They agree with truths about God, but it's not necessarily walking in faith. See, the question for every one of us every day is not merely what truths do I agree with? It is, 
in who or in what am I trusting in today to bring me satisfaction? To bring me the happiness I want over the next eight hours or eight years or for eternity? What do I look to to really secure for me a solid, satisfying future? It's trusting. That's secondly, faith means trusting all that God promises to be for us or to us. See, since faith means trusting God, you have to ask the question, trust Him to do what? Right? Okay. Do you trust me? I don't know. You haven't said anything yet, Joe. Okay, I'll pick you up tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Okay, now you've got you to gotta promise. Now you've got to decide, do you, tr- do you trust me in it? So it's trusting all that God promises. And this is where His promises are. Here in this book, they're all over the place. Now, listen. Paul, the New Testament, puts forth Abraham as, as the model of our faith every day. And th- listen to how he says this in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 to 21. Look in Abraham. Paul says, Christian, Christian, listen. No apistia. No unbelief. Oh, and I think it's a really good translation with the ESV, that, that same word, apistia. No distrust made Abraham waver concerning, hear it, the promise of God. God said something to Abraham. And the whole point is, very, he sunk his faith teeth into it says, I'm not going to distrust you. You're God. You said it. So, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. <laughs> Being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So, Faith in the daily Christian life focuses on specific promises. But which ones? I don't know. What are you struggling with? It focuses on particular promises. But I've just, for weeks and weeks, feel like God's a million miles away I'm just a complainer, complainer, complainer. Okay. Okay. Find a promise. Like Jesus' words in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well. This is what he says. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I, Jesus, will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So faith takes that promises. Ooh, to what degree am I not trusting that? Okay, God, help that become alive in me. Oh, okay. Or you're battling with guilt. I mean, you have sinned. You've sinned grievously against someone here and there. And you just for such a long time, how do you deal with it? You lacerate yourself. You beat yourself up constantly. You can't get over it. And other people talk about forgiveness and you know, but you don't know what I did. And there's something about you that says, I've got to do some kind of penance. I mean, I've got to do some acts so much that then I'll feel good enough to say, okay, God, we're good. All of that action there is sinful. So what do you do? You take a promise like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is righteous in order to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you don't... Okay, that's unbelief. So, so when you hear that, you struggle. Oh, sometimes it may take days, and weeks, and you, say, and you take all the biblical understanding around that text of the gospel and of Christ's cross, and you see yourself at the end of the tunnel three weeks later, free! And when you sin again, you realize, God, I grievously sinned. Oh, and I see the cross. I understand the cross. I can do nothing. I believe first John one night. And you're free. That's fighting the fight of faith against the sin of regret or lacerating yourself. Not trusting what he says in first John one night. So it is taking promises of God and focusing on them wherever your struggle is that particular day. Believing. And finally, faith means trusting all that God promises to be to us in Jesus. That's so key if you understand God. We have all so grievously sinned against God that we deserve eternal punishment. We deserve the holy wrath of God. Now, if that's true, then how in the world could all these amazing promises in the Bible actually be for us? The answer is through Jesus' death. Now, back to our text for a moment. Here's your son. They're all amazed. And that's why the next thing I think Jesus says to his apostles, maybe more disciples, 
But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to the disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's the center of everything. Now they didn't get it yet. He wouldn't let them get it yet. They're going to get it later. But do you see the mercy I just showed to this family and to this boy? Rebuked the demon, healed him, gave him back. Where does that flow from? Let this sink into your ears. I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. That's where it all flows from. All the promises from Genesis all the way through the Bible are only guaranteed through and because of Jesus. This is how the Holy Spirit says it through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ. He purchased them. So when a sinner turns and trusts Christ, every one of them, every one of us, can be assured that God passionately loves and cares for us and that His promises are guaranteed to us forever, purchased by our Savior. Faith is the daily walk of trusting that all the promises of God for our good are to us through Jesus Christ. So, you wake up. This is just how I... This, again, how does that work? Wake up. You're bored. You're grouchy. You're empty. You're tempted, therefore, to act in ways God says don't act. Therefore, you're tempted to walk in disobedience. Going to fill that emptiness with drunkenness, pornography, just waste my ten hours on a TV and in jail. So you turn to Psalm 16, verse 11, and God says through the psalmist, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness. Of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the Christian life. Now the battle's on. Do I believe it? Do I believe it's true in my disgustingly grumpy, empty, bored situation? See, if you ever wondered why Christians have quiet times, you think, I don't know, we're just supposed to, then stop it. And then listen to this and to get a biblical understanding of faith, and then start it again. This is why. Okay, or, so another one. Oh, you, you're seething. 
You're seething with anger and bitterness. And you just can't stop thinking about ways to get back at someone who has wronged you. I mean, sometimes really bad and it's eating you up. What does a Christian do? What is it to walk in Jesus? To walk by faith? Well, in that instance, you, you take something specific like Romans twelve nineteen, And God says to you, never avenge yourselves. Now you feel stuck. But instead, leave it to the wrath of God. You're calling me not to take revenge here that's just boiling up in me, but to leave it to your... Yes. Now listen. This is so much how Scripture works. God says, don't do that. Don't do that. Do this. Do this. But never merely just do it. Behind that do it, there are promises. Where's the, that's the power to do it. And it all, it's always, every day, reflecting, are you walking in faith? Do you believe? Or are you in unbelief in this particular area? So he gives a promise. For. <laughs> because. When, don't take your own revenge. Leave it to the wrath of God. Why? Because it is written, vengeance is mine. God says, I will repay. No, I've got to get back. Unbelief. I don't really believe it. I don't really believe God will do what is right ultimately. That's the dynamic of walking in faith. Oh, you're grieving a lost loved one, a lost uh, expectation you had, lost relationship. You're just grieving. And, it, and to the point where you realize you... You got so cocooned that you've shoved people and the idea of helping and loving and, and overflowing in any kind of joy in their life, even in your grief. And, and you start to realize it's getting to the point of living in sin and unbelief. So you turn to Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4 in your quiet time. And you read, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are being comforted by God. Okay, faith goes, okay, God, make that alive. Cause my heart to well up and just eat, trust you in that. You're being consumed by covetousness. Look what they have. What about that? I never have enough. Or just, I can't pay my 
spills and, and and it's getting to the point of not just wisdom, but you know, fretting, anxiousness. What do you do? Just believe. You don't just believe anything. You believe particular things. So you turn to Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse five to six, and you listen. God says, "Keep your life free." From the love of money. And be content with what you have. Just do it. It's never just do it. It's do it because you can trust me. For, here's his, here's his promise. For, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Battles on. To the extent that Joe continues to fret for the next four and a half days in sinful ways concerning discontentment is a reflection of unbelief in God's promise that his being with me in this is more than enough. So he says, For I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then the Hebrew writer goes, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me but kill me? That's the dynamic. Do you live by faith? One last thing for four more minutes then. As a church, as communities, churches, local churches in the body of Christ, one of the central uses of our faith, besides our daily battle to fight the fight of faith, is a community battle. One of the uses of our walking by faith is to ask God to extend the influence of the gospel in local churches. See, faith believes Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9-10. to 10, To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. A year ago, at the beginning of 2011, I called a three-month fast, to fast and pray one day a week, particularly for God to add to Sovereign Grace Fellowship four to five new family units. And He has been very graceful to us in it. Sovereign Grace Fellowship is considered still by, by church planting experts to be in a, excuse me, still in the planting stage, particularly because we're not financially self-sufficient. And we want Sovereign Grace Fellowship, its roots to go deep into the South Bay. We want it to go to the next generation. Expository preaching churches are really Needed. We could use a hundred more right in this area. And so, for the months of January, 
February and March, I think it's the next 12 weeks, I am calling you to fast and pray once a week, specifically for God in 2012. Add to Sovereign Grace Fellowship another at least four to five new family units. That means because it could be a single person or a family unit, married kids, etc., that's what I want you to focus on on those days praying for the extension of the gospel and the roots of sovereign grace to go deeper now just real briefly fasting look fasting is not some type of magical trick to manipulate God biblically fasting is it's a tool that we use in prayer it is the tool that helps us on for focused prayer to drive down our human hunger appetites so that, oh, I'm hungry, will constantly remind you, I'm supposed to be really hungry for God today and really hungry to ask God for this or for that. that it's a tool, a wonderful tool that we use. So when you're, you have your day of fasting, this is what happens. If you haven't done this recently, okay, you in your fasting that day will be a tool, a constant reminder. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to pray. Where'd that come from? Because you keep dreaming about in and out hamburgers. Oh, I'm not supposed to eat. That's right. Why am I not supposed to eat? I'm, oh, that's what I'm praying for. Your hunger pains during your fast helps you be reminded, oh, I don't hunger for God nearly enough and reminded of, what am I praying for? It's a tool. It's not, God, I'm really mean it. I'm so manipulating you. I'm starving. Pray. 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 And so specifically what I'm asking is, you might not be able to do this and pick another day, but pick Monday or Tuesday. Now, if another day is going to be, that's okay. But if you can, pick either Monday or Tuesday for the next 12 weeks to fast and pray. Now, what I mean by fast, I, this is what I do. You can do one meal, you can do two, you can do three if you want. I do two. On my fast day, I don't eat breakfast and I don't eat lunch. So basically, I eat the night before and I don't eat again until the next night. And you use that day to pray. Now, if you've got a medical problem or a nursing problem or something where you probably shouldn't fast, then don't fast. But pray. Pick one of those two days every week and pray, God, make us a more and a more of a Christ-centered people and grant to Sovereign Grace Fellowship four to five new family units here in 2012. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us just to hear with our physical ears your word. And I pray, particularly as a pastor and particularly as a Christian fighting the fight of faith, that you give to us all ears of the heart to hear that we would fight the fight of faith against our own unbelief, against our own disobedience on a daily basis, better than we ever had. May that happen here 
in your people in 2012. And we thank you for the extension of the gospel in saving people, in redounding to your glory in ten thousands of local churches, and particularly for sovereign grace.